and welcome to another week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne. It's broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network and it's brought to you by your local community radio station. I'm Sarah McKenzie. On today's program, we jump across to New Zealand to speak to Melissa Ansel Bridges from New Zealand Equity. With their newly elected Labour government, New Zealand is poised to make some big changes. One being the proposed change to the Employment Relations Film Production Work Amendment Bill 2010, commonly known as the Hobbit Law, which prevents film workers from collectively bargaining. This was introduced following an industrial dispute between some unions and movie giant Warner Brothers. John Key, Prime Minister at the time and his government, changed the labour laws almost overnight as part of a deal with Warner Brothers to ensure the Hobbit films stayed in New Zealand. Labour opposed these changes at the time and incoming Workplace Relations Minister Ian Les Galloway says that they breached a number of international labour conventions. But more on that later. Stick Together also heads to Geelong, Victoria for the Working Women Get Organised conference at Geelong Trades Hall. It's a one-day conference focusing on issues affecting all working women. But first, as always, some union news. Last week, the Paradise Papers were exposed, highlighting the despicable rot of rich individuals and companies using offshore tax havens and complex accounting arrangements to avoid paying their fair share of tax. The community and public sector union, the CPSU, has responded to these reports with a call that the tax office must have its staffing levels restored and new laws enacted to tackle tax evasion by multinational corporations and mega-wealthy individuals. The government has been reluctant to crack down on tax evasion, while instead cutting jobs in the public service, including Tax Office, Centrelink and Medicare. They spend their energies going after alleged Centrelink fraud, while private operators like Serco pay little or no tax in Australia, and it seems some of the mega-rich avoid paying any tax at all. CBSU Assistant National Secretary Michael Tull said that the government can easily afford to provide the world-class services people deserve if it makes everyone pay their fair share of tax. To do that, the government must restore the staff and resources cut from the tax office and change the rules so our tax system is fair for everyone. One company implicated in the Paradise Papers is multinational mining giant Glencore. Glencore is that same company that has locked out its workers at a central Queensland mine for four months. On the same day, the global Paradise Papers scandal exposed these offshore tax havens and tax avoidance strategies. This company locked out 190 of its workers at Oki North coal mine in central Queensland for a further two weeks. It will bring the number of days the company has locked the miners out of work to 132. Last week, following a Fair Work Commission mediation session between the union, the CFMEU, and Glencore representatives, Glencore issued a lockout notice 
within two hours of the mediation session ending. Earlier this year, Crown announced that it was sacking the workers who fixed the machines at the casino in Melbourne. Jeff Kennett, former Victorian Premier, and Crown were attempting to use a loophole in work laws to sack these workers who install, fix, and transport the gaming machines at the casino when maintenance of the machines is outsourced to Amtec. Amtec is Kennett's company. These technicians, who'd been doing the work for more than 20 years, were told that they can't apply for the new jobs and that their replacements will be on half the pay. But unions and workers fought back, and after a strong campaign, the ETU, the Electrical Trade Union, announced last week that after meetings with Crown, all sacked ETU Crown workers have been offered their jobs back in the casino on existing union terms and conditions, and with increased job security. This is a great victory for working people, and on behalf of all the sacked workers, the ETU thanked the entire union movement and the community for their strong support in getting these sacked workers their jobs back. Summer is just around the corner, and in Australia, that means beaches, flip-flops and ice creams. But this summer, Australian unions are calling on all Australians to stand up for fairness and commit to a streets ice cream-free summer. They're calling for a boycott on all products produced by the 140 workers at the Streets factory in New South Wales, who are facing pay cuts of up to 46% if Streets succeeds in terminating their collective agreement, an agreement negotiated by workers and their union, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. Here's Georgia Criss from the AMWU to update listeners on the action. At the moment, 140 uh, workers who make streets ice cream uh, in Minto in New South Wales are facing a 46% pay cut. Um, this is because their employer, Streets, has applied to terminate a collective agreement, which would see them all revert back to the award for their industry. So we've been trying to negotiate with Streets to make sure that they don't uh, kind of make this application for the past 18 months. We've been we've been at the negotiating table, but things have uh, really gone south and Streets have refused to come to the table. So We've had to. Um, uh, we, we've really had no choice. Uh, these workers have had no choice, and they've asked us to call a boycott of all streets products nationally. So, what's that boycott look like for members of the public? So that means that um, we're asking Australians to um, choose to not buy some of the most iconic ice cream brands. So we're talking about avoiding ice creams like Magnums, Calippos, Splices, Golden Gaytines, um, Vianettas, Blue Ribbon. Um, a lot of ice creams that Australians, you know, know and love. Um, but so far we've had, a, you know, a huge response. Um, a lot of Australians are recognising that uh, if ice creams aren't made fairly, then they shouldn't support support the brand. So uh, are the workers still going to work? Is a, a negotiation still going on or has everything come to a stop? Yeah, no. So it's. I think it's definitely important to note that um, at no point have the workers stopped work. At no point has, you know, production at the factory ceased. Um, the workers are still in there making these ice creams and the, the negotiations are still ongoing. But at the moment, um, we see no other choice, as I said, um, other than to call this boycott and make sure that Australians send a strong message to, to the company about uh, fairness and making sure that workers are paid properly for their labour. 
And how are workers going to win? Oh, I think that this was really demonstrated in the CUB dispute. Um, we, we saw in that dispute that Australians really care about how their products are made and how workers are treated when they make products in Australia. Um, so we saw that you know a nationwide consumer boycott of CUB products forced the company to realise that Australians weren't going to support their brand, uh, their brands, if uh, the company continued to mistreat its workers. So I think Streets Work is going to win in exactly the same way. Already we've had an incredible response to this boycott. Um, hundreds of thousands of Australians getting behind the Streets Workers and refusing to buy Streets products. And I think that um, that's going to continue into what is a very busy period for streets. Um, they're going to see that their sales are going to drop and it's not going to become financially um, or, you know, PR-wise, a very good decision for them to, to continue to uh, try to cut these workers' pay by 46%. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. I remember the first time I ever heard the term the Hobbit Law. At first I thought it was this little cute law that lived in a round eco house in a hillside shire. But it's not. It's an amendment that was rushed in in 2010 and basically stops film workers from collectively bargaining in New Zealand. But that may be all about to change. I speak with Melissa Ansel Bridges from the New Zealand Equity about the future for New Zealand film workers. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to the Australian Community Radio Show Stick Together. It's really good to have you on the program from Auckland, New Zealand. Great to be here. I have some questions for you about the Employment Relations Film Production Work Amendment Bill, more commonly known as the Hobbit Law. So there have been suggestions uh, that the newly elected Labour government in New Zealand may replace or repeal this law. But first, I I just want to, before we talk about the future of this law, I'd like if you could give some history on why this law exists and uh, what the catalyst of creating it was. Sure. Okay. So it came about during a dispute in 2010, and that was really around uh, actors in New Zealand wanting to be engaged on the Hobbit Law, which at the time was uh, one of the you know, there's really big films that we had had come to New Zealand and that they were wanting similar conditions to those of the overseas performers. And there was, there was quite a lot of background there, but essentially there was a, a do not work order in place from some of the international unions. There was a lot of scaremongering then that happened as a result of that. Threats made by the movie that it would have to be moved offshore. And actually, an agreement was come to by the unions and production company before the Hobbit Law was passed. But it was kind of used as an excuse, I suppose, the fear of of losing it, um, to pass this amendment to our Employment Relations Act um, and to give further subsidies to, to Warner Brothers, who flew an executive sort of a week following on. So, um, just to cut in for a second, um, is this yeah. just the New Zealand union that was uh, that was pushing for an agreement, or was it all other actors' unions working together on the same agreement? 
Yeah, so we had a lot of... It was, it was around the conditions of New Zealand performance, yeah. um, but we were supported by international um, actors' unions, including um, FIA and Screen Actors Guild, and obviously Media Entertainment Arts Alliance, which um, New Zealand is a part of. So the law itself, uh, in New Zealand, as is my understanding is similar in Australia, our Employment Relations Act means that the nature of your employment, if you're engaged as a contractor, is not just determined by what's in your contract. So if your contract states that you're a contractor, but the nature of your employment is actually um, more akin to an employee, you're able to challenge that in the employment court. And effectively, what this legislation, what this amendment did was say that everybody worked in the film production sector, so not just actors and performers, but um, crew, everyone working in post-production, um, even in game development actually attached to uh, to films, uh, everyone would be categorised as a contractor, unless their contract explicitly stated that they were an employee, and surprise, surprise, that never happened. So everyone's automatically an independent contractor, and that means that you're not able to challenge your employment status, which um, has basically meant that everyone's engaged. I mean, a lot of people previously were engaged as independent contractors anyway, but with the law stating explicitly that everybody is to be engaged as an uh, independent contractor, it makes it impossible for us to collectively bargain for performers because under our Commerce Act, that, that, that constitutes price fixing. So um, it's caused a lot of problems for us in terms of being able to advocate for the actors' rights here. So we're really excited about, about these changes. So if actors uh, couldn't collectively bargain from, from 2010 onwards, um, what could they do collectively together to make sure that they are treated well at work and have, and have pay that suits the work that they're doing? So one of the measures that we took as a result of the dispute was to um, engage with the with SPARTA, which is the Screen Producers Association in New Zealand, uh, to create an individual performance agreement. So that's a recommended contract, but it is only a recommendation. So if it if it's not enforced in a, in a if it's not signed on a particular production, then it it, it bears no um, sort of mandatory strength. Prior to that agreement, the only thing that existed was uh, what was uh, referred to as the pink book. So we had the pink book and the blue book. Yeah. Uh, and the blue book was for crew, and then we had the white book as well, which was, was for writers. So the, the pink book, um, the blue book is actually still um, still used, but the pink book was replaced when the um, individual performers agreement was brought in, into play. And so that was a really good step forward. It's used reasonably widely in New Zealand. It's included in funding documents with the New Zealand Film Commission and New Zealand On Air. Um, so it is used quite widely. Um, but without uh, industrial relations structure around how collective bargaining for that document works, um, we didn't have a lot of power in those negotiations at all. Um, really all we had was you know, the, the joint desire which we shared with the Screen Producers Association to be able to, you know, agree on a document. But there was nothing, you know, forcing anyone to the negotiation table. Right, okay. So now, um, so Ian Lee Galloway, the Workplace Relations Minister, uh, suggested that there would yeah. be 
changes to this law. Um, what what does the union see as the future for workers' rights in this industry? Yeah, so the commitment that the government has made is to restoring the right for workers in the industry to be able to collectively bargain, which is really exciting for us. The specific framework that that, that will be done under is to be determined. So the announcement that the minister made yesterday was around establishing uh, an advisory group with a range of industry organisations. We will obviously be a part of that conversation. And that advisory group will sit down and, and work out really what the best framework is for that collective bargaining to be able to happen in the industry. So the specifics of what that might look like, we're not sure. Um, there are a lot of different perspectives in New Zealand about the best way of uh, structuring that. So because we have a tradition of um, people in New Zealand being engaged as independent contractors, there are some sectors, particularly crew, who um, a lot of whom would quite like to continue to be engaged as independent contractors. Um, in New Zealand, there are tax benefits to being an independent contractor. So you're unable as an employee to be able to claim uh, work-related expenses. So there's, there's quite a benefit for crew in particular to be engaged as independent contractors. There are also obviously a lot of reasons, a lot of disadvantages to that, but there are some tax benefits there. So there are um, some people in the industry who would very much like to remain independent contractors. So there are a few possibilities that really need to be discussed. And I think that the next stage is really putting all of it on the table um, and working out what kind of a structure will work for everyone. So it's a bit of a watch this space um, for the next little bit, yeah? Yeah, it is. Um, so the government's obviously made it a priority. You know, this announcement was made in their first 100 days. Yeah. Uh, and the working group will, will be starting reasonably soon. Um, but... You know, everyone involved in the process has been um, talking about how it's more important to get this right than to rush it. Um, employment relations in New Zealand, employment relations legislation is obvious, um, often a bit of a political volleyball and tends to be one of the first things on the table when there's a new government. Um, and for the sake of the stability of the industry, we we don't want this to be one of those issues. So we'd like to find an enduring solution and in order for that to happen it needs to be something that everyone in the industry can live with. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Melissa, for joining us on Stick Together today um, from all the way over in New Zealand. Thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you very much. Cheers. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. We're here at the Geelong Trade Hall at the Women's Conference. I'm with Nahid um, from the NUW, a delegate and activist. Um, can you tell me a bit about this conference and why it's important that we organise as working women in our great movement? Because if we don't have healthy women, we don't have a safe society, we don't have safe new generation and yeah so I'm here because I want to learn from other activists experiences I'm here because I want to know other people that they are fighting really hard 
to make sure no one is left behind. This conference was organised by the Geelong Women's Unionist Network with support from other organisations and individuals. The conference had a strong focus on gendered violence at work, the precarious future of work and how this affects women, and the We Won't Wait campaign, which calls for 10 days family violence leave to be legislated by the federal government for its inclusion in the National Employment Standards, the NES. Not far from Geelong, our Victorian Regional Council, based in Torquay, the Surf Coast Shire, became the first employer in the world to adopt a family violence leave clause into their agreement. The Council and the Australian Services Union, the ASU, negotiated 20 days of paid violence leave into their agreement. This was in 2010, and since then, many employers have followed with variations of the clause for paid family violence leave in their own agreements. But the only way to make sure that majority of Australians can access this leave in their workplaces is to have it included in the NES. Adele Welsh, a Geelong Trades Hall Council delegate and member of the ASU, spoke about this during a panel at the conference. I was very fortunate to have had the opportunity to travel to Canberra recently to be part of a delegation of union women who lobbied federal MPs for 10 days of paid family violence leave to be put into the national employment standards so that all workers will have access to this vital leave. When meeting with politicians, union women told personal stories of their own experiences of family violence. Some women spoke about being victims themselves. Emergency services workers spoke about being the first to arrive on the scene after a family violence assault. Nurses talked about caring for women in hospital. And family violence case managers talked about assisting women and children to safety when they're leaving violent relationships. It was very clear to me that frontline union women telling our stories had an impact on many of the politicians that we met because so many of them stared at us speechless in shock and horror as we told our stories. It was also very clear to me that we have so much more work to do in telling our stories and agitating for change. Many, L many MPs from the ALP, the Greens and the Crossbench were eager to meet with us, but disappointingly, not one member of the Liberal National Party met with us. The message from the government was loud and clear. They're not interested and they don't care. The campaign for 10 days of paid family violence leave is called the We Won't Wait campaign. And that's part of a wider campaign called Change the Rules, which is demanding changes for working women. We won't wait because women can't wait. 49 women have already been killed in Australia this year by a family member. And most of those women were killed by a current or ex-partner. 41 vibrant, active women dead to family violence. We won't wait for paid family violence leave because women can't wait. And I'd like to thank Destroy the Joint um, for the wonderful work they do in investigating and recording family violence deaths. We know that family violence isn't a nine to five issue. We know that women need time to leave violent relationships, time to go to doctor's appointments, go to court, 
meet with real estate agents and talk to children's schools. Time to see a counsellor and time to manage injuries. Time to pack up the house and move. Time to recover. Approximately 800,000 Australian women have been affected by family violence this year. Two-thirds of those women are in the paid workforce. Women affected by family violence fall out of paid work all the time. They take time off work to manage injuries until all their paid leave has been used up. And then they have to choose between taking unpaid leave or going to work injured. If a woman takes unpaid leave, she runs the risk of a perpetrator becoming more enraged because many violent men control all the family finances and they want access to the money that she earns. <clears throat> women are often forced to choose to go to work injured rather than risk losing their job or risking further violence from the perpetrator. Family violence costs the Australian economy more than $14 billion per year. The cost of 10 days paid family violence leave has been estimated at five cents per worker per working day. It's 25 cents a week for a full-time worker. Even though women are primarily affected by family violence, it's not a women's issue and we have to stop labelling it as a women's issue. Family violence is a men's issue, it's a police issue, a legal issue and a community issue. It's a workplace issue and family violence is union business. For too long, women have had to bear the brunt of men's violence alone. This needs to change and we won't wait for change. Union women are demanding change. That is it for Stick Together today. Thanks for listening and thanks to everybody who contributed to the show this week. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and it's broadcast nationally by the Community Radio Network. Podcasts for this show can be found at 3cr.org.au slash sticktogether or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in contact with the producers of this show, give us a call on 03-9419-8377 or send us an email to sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. You can also interact with us and follow us on Facebook during the week. And if you have a story about your workplace or your union, please get in contact. We'd love to hear it. Tune in next time for another episode of Stick Together. And remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. My name's Sarah McKenzie, and until next time, stick together. <laughs>